Well, good evening. I did want to take some time before I start in Ephesians to just thank you all for your prayers. Uh, it means more than you know. I mean, I, I can't believe I'm actually kind of healthy, <laughs> you know, and it's just really bizarre that I'm a cancer patient <laughs> and I got surgery in a couple of days. So um, if you would turn to Ephesians 3, we're going to dive back into this uh, amazing epistle that uh, we've been working through. We're in Ephesians 3. We're going to be covering 1 through 6. And uh, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, this is Ephesians 3, verse 1. Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, if indeed you heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, about which when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed uh, by the reading of your word and the study of your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So two words should jump out to you immediately as we read this this text. And the two words uh, are really rare, rarely used in the New Testament. They're more common in Paul's epistles but they're rarely talked about in the modern church. And those two words are mystery and stewardship. And stewardship is also translated in many translations as dispensation. But you rarely hear these talked about. But these two words are critical to the revelation that Paul's unveiling here in Ephesians 3. And this new revelation that's given primarily to Paul, but also to the other apostles. And it marks not only a dramatic change in which was previously unknown to the sons of men in the Old Testament, but it also marks a dramatic change in how God deals with his people. Over and over again, we've seen in the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul's passion. And his passion over two things primarily. Number one, our position, that we are positionally no longer in the world, but we are forever in Christ. And because we are in Christ... We receive super abundant blessings of grace. So this blessed position and these divine blessings that include our election, our adoption, our redemption, our inheritance, among other things, are given to a new people. A new people that could never be confused with the nation of Israel. A people with a unique, unique origin beginning on the day of Pentecost. With a unique mission to make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with a unique destiny, a destiny which is celestial, a destiny that is heavenly. The new people would reap the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, but not the promises, because we are not promised riches and we are not promised land. Yet our blessings are no less glorious. Peter tells us we have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God 
through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And notice our inheritance is not to be revealed right now, but in the last time. All in God's perfect timing. Just as the mystery that Paul is revealing here is all in God's perfect timing. And Paul is saying this. He's saying, now the mystery is made known. That there is a new stewardship, a new dispensation of God's grace and his dealings with a new people. Not with the nation of Israel, not with the divorced wife of Jehovah, but with the virgin bride. For his bridegroom who was known because the bride was elected, the bride was chosen by the bridegroom. So what does this have to do with our verses tonight? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because tonight's verses take in the panorama of the grand plan of God and how he deals with his people. In this case, a new people, a new body of believers, under a new stewardship that it was never before revealed. But before we take it up with uh, verses 1 through 6, Let's look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3, because it is here that we find the two main commissions from God embraced in Paul's ministry that give clarity to the first six verses. So verse 8 reads, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ. Of course, this is the special charge to Paul. We know this. Peter went to the circumcised. Paul, Peter went to the, the circumcised. Paul goes to the uncircumcised. Now, verse 9, to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery for which, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So from verse 8, we have some understanding of these unfathomable riches of Christ given to the Gentiles. And by the way, Brad is going to cover this next week. I'm stepping on your verses right now. (laughs) So Brad will be be diving in deep on these unfathomable riches. But but we have some understanding, don't we? Because we've already been through chapters 1 and 2, which have talked about that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. But it is the second part of the commission, of Paul's commission, the revelation of the mystery of verse 9 that we're going to spend the bulk of our time and it's going to help us in covering the first six, cha- first six verses of chapter 3. The second part of Paul's commission is to bring to light, to bring revelation to the scope and particulars of the administration of the mystery. And this is so critical to understand because it portends a great plan of God. First, revealing the great light, which was to go out to the Gentiles, the objects of the first part of the commission, And that was anticipated in the Old Testament and fulfilled as we have seen over the last year in the book of Acts. As we've seen this movement of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, of going from Judaism to Jesus, a major movement. But it is the second part of his commission that is just as critical. And that is the revelation of the mystery. And what does the verse say? To bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. You know, the Reformation, as great and as blessed a work as that was, never brought the light of the mystery to the world. They never did. The writings of the Reformers and the subsequent saints brought the important doctrines of grace, thank God, in the face of a corrupt Roman Catholic monopoly. 
But when it came to Paul's revelation of the mystery, there's deafening silence. Why? Because those that wrongly see the church as the new Israel or that the church replaces Israel, they don't like to see distinctions made that the church is separate and distinct from the nation of Israel because it blows up their tradition. And this is a tradition, by the way, that was perpetuated by the corrupt Roman Catholic Church then and even today. That the church has morphed into or worse, replaced Israel. And they receive all the blessings that were granted only to Israel. This fundamental misunderstanding of who the church is and fundamental misunderstanding of who the nation of Israel is is why I believe we should be just as versed in the administration, the dispensation of the mystery, as we are the doctrines of grace. So with that as foundation, let's look at just the first five verses. Uh, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, if indeed you heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief, about which, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So we will look at the stewardship and the mystery here in verses 1 through 5, then the exclusivity of the revelation of the mystery, and the amazing summation of the mystery in verse 6, which contains a three-part blessing for the Gentiles. Again, a brand new work of God, designed by God to be revealed at a particular time, right here in the apostolic age, by the Apostle Paul. Now to the word oikonomia, translated in the LSB as stewardship, and oikonomia is translated as dispensation in the King James. To many readers of the Bible, this is an unfamiliar word. You just don't hear it much. Oikonomia is a compound word. It brings together two words. The first word is house and the other word is law. So it's very simple. It's it's house laws. And what we have here are God's house laws. As used in verses 3 and 4, it has a view to the world as a great stewardship or a great household in which God is dispensing or administering his grace in how he governs his people how he administers his grace. But let me be clear, God is not changing here. He is not changing. But what is changing is his stewardship towards his people. This is not radical. We all understand this, don't we? That God dealt with Adam one way before the fall and another way after the fall. This doesn't mean that God is changing. But obviously something new is being revealed. Something is changing. How do we know that? Because if there was no change and nothing new is being revealed, then why do they call it the mystery that is now only now being revealed by Paul? Which begs the question, what is this mystery? The word is used twice here in our verse, 1 through 6, and then again in verse 9. The word mystery does not have a connotation of a murder mystery. It's not a whodunit. It simply means it's a secret, in this case, that was held and hidden in the Old Testament. Colossians 1 says, It has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to the saints. Romans 16 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. You will find no other truth contained in Scripture that could be more explicit, that could be more unmistakable than that this mystery was completely unknown until the day of Paul. The seed of woman was no mystery. Neither was son of Abraham. That was no mystery, nor the son of David. The coming Messiah was no mystery. He was plainly anticipated. Even the salvation of the Gentiles was no mystery. So we should be asking, what is this mystery? The mystery is simply that the church of God, a new assembly of believers, distinguished from the nation of Israel, is forming with Christ the head. As the head of this body, Christ is the bridegroom. This new thing he is building is his bride. Paul reveals this in Ephesians 5. He says, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And then he says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The church was not seen. It was not even made known that it was coming in the Old Testament. And yet here it is connected to Jesus Christ in the most intimate way, comparing this divine union of Christ and his church to the most intimate union we know of. And that is the intimate union of a husband and a wife as one flesh. And just as there's no daylight between a husband and wife, there is no daylight between Christ and his church a relationship of such a kind that the Father, between the Father and a new people, a brand new people, but it's not His covenant people. It's not the people that God called mine elect. It's not the people that He referred to in Amos when He said, you only have I known among the families of the earth. It's not the nation of Israel, but a new people that God foreknows, that He predestines, that He calls, and He justifies and he glorifies that is the mystery the church and it did not exist and it was not made known but is now being gathered through new house rules the dispensation of grace not the dispensation of mosaic law pre-cross or even the dispensation of the millennial kingdom which was post-tribulation this is a new arrangement a new body the church gathered with new house rules And many will say, well, wait a minute, the church is in the Old Testament. Doesn't Stephen proclaim that when he talks about the church being in the wilderness? Well, let's talk about that. And you won't find this error in the LSB. But even when it's considered, as we look at this, the error is almost comical. To consider the rebellious rabble of the nation of Israel wandering through the wilderness, the church, or even the New Testament, which we looked at in Acts 19. You guys remember the... uh, Hate-filled rioters in the temple of Diana called the church. Another example, which may be worse, is in the King James, when they list the church in the chapter headings, but clearly the church is absent in the text. One example should suffice of Isaiah 52. Listen to the heading here. It's Isaiah 52. The King James says, Christ persuadeth the church to believe his free redemption. Sounds pretty good. But then you read the text. Here's what the text says. Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your glorious garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. 
Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says Yahweh, you were sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says Lord Yahweh, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Far from seeing the church of God, the called out ones, the ecclesia, what do we see? We see Zion is exhorted to awake and put on strength. We see Jerusalem, the holy city that is called to put on beautiful garments and shake herself from the dust. And who is that people that went down into Egypt, a family, and came out a nation? It was a nation of Israel, of course, not the church. This is a stunningly false interpretation. But every amillennialist and every postmillennialist is forced to say, yep, that's the church in the Old Testament. You know, the nation of Israel is used 2,000 times in the Old Testament. So I did a deep search of the Hebrew. Even the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. You know what I found out? The nation of Israel means those 2,000 times in the Old Testament. It means the nation of Israel. It's not the church. Or even the 70 times in the New Testament, the nation of Israel always means the nation of Israel, not the church. So can we once and for all dispense of this notion that the church is in the Old Testament. Why would Jesus say, I'm gonna, I will build my church in Matthew 16? Now, since Christ and the church are at the heart of this mystery, let's hear Colossians 2. It reads, So that their hearts may be encouraged, having been held together in love, even unto all the wealth of the full assurance of understanding, unto the full knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, here's the vital question. If all the wealth of understanding and full knowledge are hidden in God's mystery, that is Christ, even the administration of the mystery that Paul is commissioned to bring to light, and if we don't understand this, we don't grasp this hidden truth, then how are we to attain this wealth of understanding and full knowledge? especially when Christ is right at the center of this truth, but not just Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians. It says, Even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So what is that saying? It's saying, again, the mystery is Christ and his one body, the church unified. Paul wants us to get this. Why? Because God wants us to get this. My testimony is not unique, but I can say that once I grabbed a hold of these truths, that God has begun a brand new thing, a new dispensation to call out a bride for his son through a new body who are saved from their sins and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The entire Old Testament opens up. It makes sense in its most literal, plain, normal hermeneutic. It's normal interpretation. And in like finishing a puzzle, all the pieces start to fit into place. There's no allegorizing. There's no twisting scripture. There's no taking a a literal hermeneutic here and then an allegorizing hermeneutic there. You just read it as it plainly is with a literal hermeneutic like we always do. And what's so great about this is we can confirm that every promise God has made is true. 
Jesus Christ will be glorified in the place of his humiliation. The Father will break the power of his people. Jesus Christ will sit on David's literal throne in Jerusalem. The nation of Israel will be saved. The Father will be their God. And the nation of Israel will be his people for the first time. They will occupy the very lands promised to them in the Abrahamic covenant. There will be a literal earthly thousand-year reign. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The, the child will play at the serpent's den. And ten men from every tongue of the nations, Gentiles, will take the hold of the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. And notice that of all I just mentioned, none of it is about us. Why? Because it's not about us. 70% of, the, of, the, of, the, of Scripture is about the nation of Israel. We are the mystery. We are the wild olive branch grafted into the blessings of Abraham, not, the, not into, the, into Israel. And although we're not the main act, we are the bride of Christ as part of the mystery. But alas, the last Adam is not alone, but is with his Eve, the church who is united to him under his headship, under his name. And as Eve was with Adam, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, we are united to Christ. And just as Adam was incomplete without Eve, Christ was incomplete without the church. The scripture says that in Ephesians 1. It says, And he the Father put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. An amazing verse, isn't it? And please don't miss the fact that the scripture never records that Jesus Christ reigns over his church. He doesn't reign over his own body. Does he reign over the nation of Israel? Yes. Does he reign over the, the Gentile nations? Absolutely. But he does not reign over his church. He reigns with his church. His body. Brothers and sisters, is that how you see the church? We must remember that there is only one prized seat at the table, at the marriage supper of the Lamb with our Lord. And it is not given to any other saint. It's not given to an Old Testament saint. It's not given to a tribulation saint. It's not given to the, the nation of Israel. That special seat belongs to the bride. All else are invited. This truth should thrill our hearts. It should humble our souls. But we're in the minority. Most of Christianity doesn't know the mystery of Christ and his church as distinct from the nation of Israel. So instead of seeing God's distinct dealings, his house laws set down differently. Israel dealt with this way. The church dealt with this way. They toss it all into the blender. And instead of looking at the differences in our origins, the differences in our missions, the differences in our destiny, they put it all together. And it's a confusing mix. But worse than that, it, it pollutes the Old Testament account. It throws off all eschatology. And worse than that, it calls God a liar. That he would break his word. He would break his covenants. It's odd how these theologians will wax on and on about covenant this and covenant that. When we're at the Puritan conference, these Presbyterian Baptists, uh, they went on and on about the covenants. The covenants this and that and everything. 
but they deny the grandest covenants of the scripture, denying the truths of the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, even the new covenant that will sweep together to find their fulfillment in the millennial kingdom ruled over by Jesus Christ and his church. These are everlasting covenants. And they are so absolutely sure to be fulfilled that the only way that it would not happen is if the entire fixed order of the universe became undone. Listen to Jeremiah 31, confirming the everlasting nature of these covenants when referring to the new covenant that God will make not with the church. Who do you make the covenant with? The house of Judah, the house of Israel. So what's he say? He says, thus says Yahweh, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that the day and night will not be at their appointed time, you know what that's saying? That's saying that the entire universe has become undone. Then my covenant may also be broken with my, my servant David. This is a Jewish way of saying my covenants are absolutely certain. So let's go to our final verse, verse 6. It reads that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So verses 1 through 5 have built this case of the mystery to be culminated in this amazing verse, which gives three groundbreaking particulars of this new thing, the mystery, which includes new fellowship of both Jew and Gentile on equal footing. Each of these three points, again, were not revealed in the Old Testament. But let me just say, if we went back to Moses or went back to David or Abraham or Jeremiah, and we did a man on the street and we said, Jeremiah, what do you think? Is it possible that the Gentiles would become fellow heirs, that they would be members of the same body, that they would be partakers of the Messiah with the Jews? Well, a question like that may have been the only thing that would stop the weeping prophet Jeremiah from weeping because he would be laughing. And it wouldn't be ha-ha laughing. It'd be laughing to scorn at such an idea would even be considered to the first point that the Gentile would be a fellow heir. The mystery in its dispensation or house law is that there's this new body. And in that new body, the Gentile will be a fellow heir with the Jew of the nation of Israel. The Jews has exclusive rights to God as the great benefactor. Only they had the right to be called heirs. So to see the Gentile in a new standing and a new position to receive from God any divinely given inheritance is astonishing. But with the word fellow used three times in our text, we know there's an assumption here of equal standing before God. To be blessed by God, this is a revolutionary idea for the Gentile, but it is a blasphemous idea to the Jew since there would no longer be an inner circle, no special access, no exclusive with God, which the Jews solely and self-righteously occupied for thousands of years. The second point of verse 6 is that the Gentiles would be fellow members of the same body. You can scour the Old Testament and never find a single example of the blurring of the Jews and the Gentiles. There are no two people groups in the history of mankind that were more distinct from one another than the nation of Israel and the pagan Gentile nations. They were always seen in their respective places, separated theologically, socially, racially, economically. They were separated even geographically. 
And guess what? Both sides liked it that way. This was another revolutionary idea revealed in this mystery of the church. And just as we talked about last month, that before the body, the bride, the church, could be united to her bridegroom, Christ, there had to be unity in that body between the enemies, Jew and Gentile, which is exactly what God has accomplished in this new thing, the church, the mystery He has broken down the wall to create two into one new man through the cross, thus reconciling them both to God in one body, stating that Jew and Gentile are fellow members of the same body. Again, positionally, Jew and Gentiles are seen here on equal footing, not one higher, not one first, but fellow members of the body of Christ, where before there were thousands of deep-seated distinctions between Jew and Gentile. Now, in almost every manner, in every detail of life, it all vanishes in the church. Colossians 3 records, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free men, but Christ is all and in all. This unity in the church, oddly enough, was revealed, but it wasn't in the Old Testament, and it came from a really unlikely source. Caiaphas, as high priest, prophesied this very union would be the result of the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. As recorded in John 11, this is Caiaphas speaking. Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this from himself, But being high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So there we have Caiaphas making a prop. Well, God using Caiaphas to make a prophecy. Finally, we come to the third particular of the mystery, which was previously unknown, that the Gentiles would be fellow partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel, there may be no, no other issue for the Jew that is, they're more possessive about than their Messiah. The Jewish Messiah belonged to no other race, no other creed, no other country than the nation of Israel. And nothing angers the Jew more than the claim of the Gentile to have an equal share in their Messiah. If the other two to be fellow heirs and members of the same body were unimaginable, this one was forbidden. This one was verboten to believe that anyone but a Jew would be a partaker of the Jewish Messiah. This was a bridge too far. The vision of the kingdom reign of righteousness and peace under the kingship of Messiah in Zion was drilled into every Jewish child from their youth. That when the Jewish Messiah came, the Jewish kingdom came. Bringing, as you remember from the book of Acts, a time of refreshing, the restoration of all things. This was their greatest hope. This was their greatest dream. And bringing an access of the Gentiles to their Messiah, well, that was crushing their dream. That kind, this kind of symmetry between Jews and Gentiles would take a miracle by God. And it did. How? Through a change in dispensation, a change in house rules. To accomplish the impossible, this was the miracle of the mystery. That there had to be new house rules, how God rules his people, how he administers his grace. 
There had to be a new dispensation with the Messiah and his church together, inseparable, where the Gentile is brought up to the level of the Jew as a fellow member of Christ, as a, as a fellow member of the body of Christ, and a fellow partaker in all the promises, in all the prophecies of Christ. The dispensation of the law through Moses could never produce such a change. Only the dispensation of grace through Jesus Christ would produce a new body, a new body of elect ones. And finally, I finish with the Apostle John, who foreshadowed this change in dispensations when he wrote through inspiration of the Holy Spirit in John 1, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the clarity of your word here that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have super abundant blessings, Lord. We have your grace. We have been put in a position we are fellow heirs with the Jews, that we are fellow members of the same body and that we are partakers in the Jewish Messiah with the Jews. And Lord, we are thrilled at our position that we don't deserve, but you have lavished your grace upon us to put us in this position through a new dispensation that you have brought new house rules to include us who are far off. You have brought us near, Lord. You have redeemed us. We give you all the glory. We thank you that we are in this church, this new thing that you are gathering together for this time until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. We praise you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.